All right. Can you hear me? Yes, we're on. Can I use this? Thanks. Let's see if I can keep from positioning this right in front of the projector. Welcome, everybody. What a good crowd this morning. I didn't, was really expecting we would kind of have a small crowd today. Uh, it's good to see everybody. And if you're new here, come back next week and hear Mike Halpin speak. He's the, <laughs> please, <laughs> don't stop with me today. But anyway, I am on today. I don't get to speak that often, but I, I really enjoy it when I do get a chance to do it. And so I, I hope today this will all come together for all of us. My sons know that I've been preparing up for the last minute. And I came up the stairs just about five minutes before we left here saying, oh, it finally came together. Maybe. We'll see. So um, if you'll join me in prayer just a moment. Lord, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, may my words be something that would bring honor to you today. Pray that you help me to reflect your heart today and, and to help other people to sense it as well. We look to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, wouldn't it be great to, know, to be able to know the future? Um, in the past, when I was growing up, there were people like Gene Dixon and other prophets out there. But today, when I think of people who are kind of modern-day prophets, I, like, I look to the captains of finance in many ways. They're the ones who are trying to read the tea leaves and figure out what's going on in the economy and trying to make sense of it, trying to make money for themselves and money for other people in the process. Um, maybe you've, oh, yeah, that's my topic, Independence Day and in, in Prophecy. Let's see if we can pull that together. Um, doesn't show up real well. Berkshire Hathaway. Anybody heard of them before? Warren Buffett. Guy that's traded places back and forth several times with Bill Gates as far as the, being the richest man in America. Um, went through a kind of a, he was really hurt in the downturn of the economy, as was everybody else. But his fund, I understand, Berkshire Hathaway, is making a comeback. He's considered to be one of the strongest companies in America. Actually, it's a conglomeration of companies. Uh, maybe you've heard of Geico in their advertisements. He owns them. Or maybe Fruit of the Loom. Anybody got on some of their uh, garments today? <laughs> he owns them too. Um, a good part of the Union Pacific Rail Railroads. Um, a lot of different, a lot of different companies he basically owns, and his company is making a good comeback today. Uh, he's having to try to figure out what are the strong companies, which ones are not, in order to build invest wisely. Maybe you've heard of George Soros, who's made a lot of money in the communications uh, stocks and has poured a lot of it into a lot of causes that, uh, like moveon.org and things like that, um, a lot of democratic uh, causes. Uh, there's a number of ones I follow. Uh, John Paulson, who uh, has done very well with shorting real estate stocks. Uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, who has written a book recently called The Black Swan, where he says that uh, you shouldn't be trying to figure out what's in the bell-shaped curve because the real things that really do well are the things that happen outside the bell-shaped curve. So you ought to look for those things, you know, the, the, the airplanes that are going to hit the World Trade Center and things are the things that will really make you money if you can find them. Uh, I don't know how you predict those. 
An interesting one that I've followed over the, the last couple of years is a fellow by the name of Andrew Laldy. Andrew uh, came from a business school that wasn't widely recognized. He didn't come from Harvard or Yale or any place like that. But he uh, made waves here when he, uh, with his goodbye letter. He, he started a capital venture fund uh, uh, called uh, Laldy Capital in which he invested in shorting residential and commercial real estate stocks. And he did very well. He only did it for about a year, but uh, his company made over 1,000% interest in the time that everybody else was going down in 2007. If you're like me and don't know what shorting a stock means, it kind of turns the whole philosophy of, of buying stocks on his head. You know, normally they talk about buy low, sell high. Well, he would sell high and then buy low. Strange thing about the stock market is you can actually do that. You can, you can sell something you don't own at a high price and then buy it back later at a low price and deliver the goods to the person who bought it from you originally. It's called shorting stocks. And he did that with real estate and, of course, did very, very well by doing that. Um, made $15 million. And then what he got known for is he just said, goodbye, I'm done. I'm not going to manage anybody else's money anymore. I'm going to manage my own money. Walked away, said, I'm going to buy an island, throw away my Blackberry, get out of this lifestyle, that's, and I'm going to just retire and enjoy life. We'll see what he does with it, where he goes with it. It'll be interesting to see. A lot of people are convinced that a leopard can't change his spots, that Andrew Lottie will be back. We'll see if he ever does or not. Does anybody need reminding that financial freedom and, and um, that finances and, free, and, econo- and freedom are oftentimes uh, intertwined. Uh, there was a time in our country that if you were going to vote, you had to be somebody who owned property. You couldn't vote unless you owned property. That was the, signif- the signification that you had wealth. You had a, a right to vote because you owned, you owned something. Dave Ramsey in, in Crown Ministries uh, both tout financial freedom through getting out of, date, de- getting out of debt. And the Bible talks about how the, the debtor is slave to the lender. And that's one of the key steps is getting out of debt, actually having property, having something that you own yourself. I'm sorry if my title was kind of confusing to people this last week. I'm not actually going to try to make the case this morning that America's Independence Day of July 4th occurs in prophecy. But I would like to make the case that God likes to announce freedom to his people ahead of time before he actually does it. In scripture, like a good public speaker, God tells us he's going to give us freedom. And then he does it. And then he says, now I want you to remember that I gave you freedom. What led me to this topic was my next section of First Peter. But just a, an example on what I was just talking about as far as uh, this aspect. Real quickly, in Genesis 15, 12, verses 12 through 16, uh, God told Abraham that there was going to come a day he was going to send his descendants to, Is- to Egypt. And they were going to be in bondage for 400 years. And then after 400 years, after the sin of the Amorites had reached its climax, he would send them back to claim the land of Canaan for themselves. It was the promised land. And before any of this had ever happened, he told Abraham it was going to happen. Likewise, in Isaiah 
verses, Isaiah chapters 44 and chapter 45, an amazing prophecy, if you go back and look at it, about a king by the name of Cyrus, who is some going to, they going to deliver Israel out of bondage of being exile, being in exile in Babylon. What's amazing about this prophecy is that Isaiah got the word of God about this before the temple had been destroyed, before Israel had been taken into captivity into Babylon, before a guy named Cyrus is even born. And here it was that being announced far, far in advance, well, a couple hundred years in advance before it actually happened. And God was telling Isaiah that this was going to happen. I've been going through 1 Peter. Now, we'll skip that slide. That's about Cyrus, great King Cyrus. And this is, let's see if I can, yeah, thanks, Harry. I've been going through 1 Peter, and in 1 Peter, we're up to um, verses 9 through 12. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in those things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. As to this salvation, that's referring back to verse 9. And it's talking about the salvation of your soul, salvation of souls. And, of course, the soul is the total person, the the life, the breath, the emotional you, the real you, the total you. You could actually translate the salvation of your life if you wanted. And with that salvation, we're talking about three aspects Salvation of the past, salvation from the bondage of judgment that happened in the past. We were all under judgment, being under Adam, being as a part of Adam. We just automatically are under judgment. And then we're also under judgment because of our own sin, not just Adam's sin. I mean, who here, even if you didn't have, even if you didn't have Adam's sin clinging to you, could claim that he was that he didn't need salvation, that he didn't need somebody to redeem him himself. And so we have salvation from the, also the tendency to put ourselves back under bondage. Can you imagine that, that somebody who would have been freed would consider ever putting themselves back into bondage? And yet we see that all the time, don't we? One of the most recent cases here, we've heard about the sad case of a Mark Sanford, a the governor out of South Carolina, who, though he was freed and had a great situation, he's the governor of the the state of South Carolina. He goes and he chooses to give himself under bondage to a philosophy that says, I have to follow my soulmate. And he ends up cheating on his wife, ends up going to Argentina, wrecking his political career, wrecking his, his, uh, his marriage. His wife is, at this point, choosing to stand beside him But uh, so sad to see somebody like that who would choose to put himself back under bondage. And we all have that tendency to do that as well. A tendency to want to fall back and give ourselves up to the philosophies and thinking of this world and the the pulls of this worldly, the appetites and desires that our bodies have and put ourselves back under bondage. 
And then someday, salvation from the bondage in this world. Salvation from having to be in this world where there is a bondage going on all the time. We'll be saved from the, from the presence of sin, you might say. We can only understand and act on this salvation to the extent that we understand how far we have fallen and how desperate is our bondage, how desperate we would be without God's salvation, the extent to which we are enslaved without God's salvation. This is a subject that deserves constant reexamination to keep our own lives in perspective and to make sure that the next generation understands it as well. It's one of the reasons why we have the the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper that we'll be celebrating later on here. Going on in these verses, the prophets who prophesied of the grace, of the unmerited favor, it's unmerited because we didn't deserve it, that would come to you, they made careful searches and inquiries. Peter was a student of prophecy and he was a participant in prophecy. In 2 Peter, he goes on to talk about this aspect of someday being freed from the presence of sin, from the presence of this world. But, and as a result, he gives us a, a very good look at the prophet's mindset of what's going on here. The prophets were given words that they themselves didn't even fully understand completely, and they had to study words that had a source outside themselves. Interesting to think of, a, of your... Of, giving a word of prophecy, having it written down, having scripture, and then having to go back and study your own words to figure out, what was I talking about? How did this, what was, what's indicated here? What's going on? And that's exactly what we seem to have, uh, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he, indi- as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets especially wanted to know who was this person, this anointed one, this son of God that they were being told about by God and that they didn't fully understand themselves. What would be the timing of the things that would happen? What would be the nature of his sufferings? We have an example of that in Isaiah 53. And what would be the subsequent glories? An example of that in Isaiah 11. Peter talks there about how the Spirit of Christ was at work in the prophets, indicating to them what was to happen. This person would come, this salvation that would be revealed someday. In verse 11, he goes on to equate this Spirit of Christ with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. We have the second and third persons of the Trinity working together in tandem as one, revealing revelation to the prophets. Peter is claiming here the same authority for himself and for the other prophets that have preached the good news to the exiles in the dispersion. We started out talking about in in 1 Peter 1.1. They had the same spirit that the Old Old Testament prophets had. We find this also in this equation made in Romans 8.9 where uh, Paul says, However, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. If indeed the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. These are things that even angels long to look into. 
This is typified by the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody been following the news this last week about the Ark of the Covenant? Steve, see a head shaking? Some other people? Um, maybe you've heard that there was supposed to be a big announcement. came out of Italy. The, the, uh, the bishop of, of Ethiopia had, um, or the, the, the Orthodox Church in Ethiopia had gone and was meeting with the Pope. And, and he came out and made an announcement that on Friday, June 26th, they were going to finally unveil the Ark of the Covenant. Now, for years, the church in Ethiopia has been saying that they are possessors of the Ark of the Covenant. They've been holding on to it for about 400 years, protecting it or so. It's never been brought out. People have not seen it. There's always one guard kept. He's the only one that ever sees the Ark. Nobody else is allowed in there. He and the bishop are the only ones who have seen the Ark. But it's there, and the Eastern Orthodox Church, or the Eastern Orthodox, excuse me, the Eastern Orthodox Church, has for years been claiming that they have the Ark of the Covenant. I can't. I'm not going to say it's there or not. I don't. I'm, excuse me. I didn't mean to slip and say that. Um, there are people like Bob Cornuki and others who think that there's a very good chance. There's a good. Uh, um, there's a very good trail of history that leads to Ethiopia. That, and it might be. We don't know. We'll see. But they don't. Anyway, there was this announcement that there was going to be this unveiling on Friday, June 26th, and then Friday came and went, and, and now they're backing up and saying that he was misquoted, that, that wasn't, they're not actually going to unveil it at this time. And so we're left guessing again. Is it, uh, is it or is it not? Uh, shall we all troop over to Ethiopia and, and go visit uh, the shrine there and, and where supposedly the ark is being kept? Um, at any rate... The ark is a, a, it's a, it's an interest, it, it was a box, as you probably remember, that uh, God had Moses create. It was uh, covered with gold plate, and it had a lid called a mercy seat that uh, was all made of one piece of gold and a couple of angels called cherubim on each side, each end of the lid of the, of the, of the mercy seat, uh, and these angels are overlooking the mercy seat, overlooking the, the mercy of God, and looking into the box, which of course contained the testimony and the, 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 the commandments of God. And it's a type or a typification of the, uh, of the desire that angels have to even look into these things, as Peter's talking about here. If the angels in the Old Testament prophets were anxious to understand this salvation of God, this mercy of God, what about us? Do we have the same desire, the same focus, the same interest? Peter was a big fisherman and a prophesying apostle of Jesus. In the letter we call Second Peter, God also used Peter to predict our future liberation from the presence of sin. He was also a student of prophecy. And in Luke 24... Peter's uh, presence, in Peter's presence, Jesus said, These are my words. Everything written about me in Moses, uh, everything written about me in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Some scholars think that there are 333 prophecies or additions to prophecies about the Messiah written down at least 500 years before Jesus was born. There are authors who have tried to argue two sides that the prophecies were written after Jesus to make it look like he fulfilled them, which is ridiculous because uh, the Old Testament was completed about 400 B.C. 
according to Ezra and you know, the last things we have written there in Ezra and Malachi, even if you accept that, the, that those things were written about much later than, than uh, Ezra and Malachi, written down much after the fact, you can't get around the fact that the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was written in about 200 to 250 B.C., and they had, they had the whole Old Testament at that time when that translation was made by the Septuagint. Septuagint actually stands for the word, comes from the word 70. There were supposedly 70 Jewish scholars that were involved in translating the Old Testament, which was in Hebrew and in Aramaic, translating it into Greek. And that, so we have the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was completed 200 to 250 years before Christ. So at the very least, the entire Old Testament was done by then. The others that realize that that's ridiculous, we can't claim that, that um, the prophecies were written after Jesus. So there are others that say, well, Jesus and his disciples must have tried to engineer his life so it looks like he fulfilled prophecy. Which also is ridiculous when you actually look at the prophecies and see how many of them could have actually, Jesus and his disciples actually could have had any control over. There's almost none. God wrote these prophecies to show his belief, excuse me, show his control over the affairs of men. In 1 Peter 1, Peter lays out two pillars of our belief in God's salvation, the resurrection and prophecy. Paul on his missionary journeys would seek out a synagogue and go in and talk to the Jews about the resurrection of Jesus and the prophecies of the Messiah, the anointed one. Let's look at a handful of these prophecies. Now, in my words following, I am greatly indebted to Josh McDowell. If any of you have heard of him, the apologist, um, I will speak fast, but not as fast as Josh. <laughs> You'll have to put your thinking caps on to keep up. It's not exactly, but it's very close. What I'm going to say is not exactly, but very close to exactly how Josh summarized prophecy as part of his talk at Focus on the Family, on the topic of overcoming the father wound in 2008. It also comes from his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And before he gave his speech in 2008, years ago when I was in North Africa, I used to use the, uh, his, his uh, description there of prophecy as I would talk with Muslims and I would present it like this. Because for Muslims, there's a hermeneutic principle called the chain of authority. And if you are going to uh, illustrate the strength of a traditional saying of Muhammad or of one of his followers, you have to establish a clear chain of authority. It was passed on from so-and-so to so-and-so to so-and-so and to so-and-so. And the strength of a saying was based upon how good your chain of authority was. Josh McDowell talks about this in the terms of being like an address. If you were to send a letter to somebody and you only had the address of... Um, of uh, Topeka, Kansas, well, you know, it probably wouldn't get where you're quite where you're going to go. Well, it might have been. Well, I grew up in Sabetha, Kansas, and, and if you'd written Larry McFall, Sabetha, Kansas, at one point it actually might have gotten to me. Uh, Sabetha's not real big. But Topeka probably wouldn't manage it. You'd probably have to have a, a, street, no, a street name. And beyond a street name, you'd probably have to have a, a house number. And all these things add up and narrow down the address to the point where you can actually find the person you're looking for. And that's what these series of prophecies do. 
Before recorded time in Genesis 3.15, God gave the first sign of his anointed son when he said, the Messiah would be born of the seed of the woman. Now everyone in the Bible is referred to as being born of the seed of man, except only Jesus. Only Jesus was referred as, to as the seed of the woman. Why? The virgin birth, which both Muslims and Bible-believing Christians accept. Then God narrows it down even further. He says his anointed son would be more than just the seed of a woman. Noah had more than just a boat. He had three kids named Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Every family on earth can trace their lineage from one of these three. Now God narrows it down even further when he eliminates two-thirds of the world's people when he says, you can know who my son is because he'll not only be born of the seed of the woman but also the lineage of Shem. Out of the lineage of Shem, God called a man out of Ur of the the Chaldees by the name of Abraham. And God narrows it down even further because he says, not only will my son be born of the seed of the woman and the lineage of Shem but also the descendants of Abraham. Now, Abraham had eight children, and God eliminates seven-eighths of them when he says, My son will be born of the seed of the woman of the lineage of Shem and the descendants of Abraham and the line of of Isaac. Now, Isaac had two sons, and God eliminates 50% of the line of Isaac. You math majors, do you see the historical probability building up? When God says, not only would my son be born of the seed of the woman of the lineage of Shem, the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, but also the line of Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, out of which developed the 12 tribes of Israel. And God eliminates 11 twelfths of the line of Israel in Genesis 49.10. When he says, My son will be of the seed of the woman, of the lineage of Shem, for the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, and also the tribe of Judah. Now, within the tribe of Judah, there are several family lines. And in Isaiah 11.1, God eliminates every single one except one. When he says that my son will be of the seed of the woman, of the lineage of Shem, from the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, and the family of Jesse. Now Jesse had eight children, and God eliminates seven-eighths of the family of Jesse when he says that my son will be of the seed of the woman, of the lineage of Shem, from the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, and the house of David. Then God narrows it down even further in Psalm 22, a very unusual prophecy about 1012 B.C., in which he says that, You can know who my son is, because he'll be born of the seed of the woman, of the lineage of Shem, from the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, the house of David. And he'll be crucified with his hands and feet pierced against a tree. Someone might argue that thousands of people were crucified. But that method of execution didn't exist until 800 years after this prophecy in Psalm 22 was made. Then God narrows it down even further in Psalm 22, Zechariah 11, Psalm 41. In one day, 20-some prophecies were all fulfilled in Christ. Here are seven. God says, you can tell who my son will be, because not only will he be born of the seed of the woman, the lineage of Shem, the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, house of David, crucified. He'll be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver, thrown down in the temple, used to buy a burial plot, clothes divided by casting lots, and be buried in a rich man's tomb. And God noted down even further in Micah 5.2, when he says that not only would my son be born of the seed of the woman, of the lineage of Shem, the descendants of Abraham, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, the house of David. He'll be crucified, betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver thrown down the temple, used to bear by a barrel of plot, clothes divided by casting lots, and be buried in a rich man's tomb. He'll also be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem, Ephrata. At the time God said this, 
Bethlehem had less than a thousand inhabitants. And so God eliminated all the other cities of the world as the place of his son's birth. Finally, in 1 Peter 1.11, it says the prophets made careful inquiry, seeking to know not only who this person would be, but also when he would come. And God did say in Matthew 9.26 and Malachi 3.1 that all this would happen before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. When did that occur? 70 A.D., about 35 years after Jesus. 333 prophecies, but there isn't time to look at all of them today. How about some applications? Have you been redeemed out of slavery? Have you, been, have you experienced freedom from bondage? Have you accepted the, the uh, freedom that comes with salvation from the penalty of sin? God offers freedom. From his judgment to you through his son. You haven't, if you haven't accepted him yet, why not do it today? Let him pay the ticket for you. He's already done it. You just have to accept it. See, that's the problem. I have a $10 bill here. Who wants it? Does anybody want it? Nobody wants it. Well, I see lots of hands. You've got it. <laughs> That's it. (laughs) You know what? God can stand there all day and offer his free gift of salvation. And if you don't come forward and accept it, you don't get it. You don't understand it, and you don't get it. Jesus said in in John 1.12, But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God. Have you accepted Christ? Have you reached forward and, and confessed to him, Lord, I need you. I need to be freed. I need salvation from my bondage. Salvation from the judgment that comes from being in Adam, from Adam's sin. If you haven't, do that today. Are you ex- the second possible application, are you experiencing freedom from the power of sin? God offers you this power too, although I'll admit that it's a battle. Although God promised the land of Canaan to the the Jews, they had to go in and win the land. And likewise for us, we have a battle ongoing. We're in this flesh still. We have something new after we've accepted Christ. We have a new spirit in us, a new desire to serve God in a way that we didn't before. And yet there's still this battle, these appetites that our body has is pulling us towards wanting to do what Mark Sanford did. We have all these natural appetites, desires for good things like sleep, like, a, like, a, like food, like sex, like significance, like prosperity. But if we try to reach out and grab them at the wrong time, 
God's, when it's not God's timing, we end up doing it in an unethical way. We end up doing it in a way that, that is sin. It's wrong. And it can do, be destructive. It can destroy our lives. Are you experiencing freedom from the power of sin? If not, if you're struggling really bad with it, don't suffer alone. Find somebody to talk with. The body of Christ is there. That's part of God's spirit working in us as well. Accountability. Talk with somebody. Pray with somebody. Find somebody that you can meet with that, that will hold you accountable on that issue and that will help you to, to win over these, these desires that are, you're willing to fulfill maybe at the wrong time. And wait for God's timing for that. How about um, a third application? Do you long to look into salvation and prophecy as much as the angels? Does the Lord's Supper get boring and tiresome to you after a while? How about your time in the Word? Mike likes to remind us regularly, read your Bibles. That's what the angels are doing. They're looking over the commandments and the testimony. Are you in, your, in the Word? In the Navigators, we had a, um, something we called the wheel illustration. You've probably all seen it. It's very famous, very old. Four spokes in order to get the driving force of the life of Christ out to the outer rim of your life where the rubber meets the road. These four spokes are four different aspects of our Christian life. Fellowship, witnessing, prayer, and the word. The foundation spoke, the wheel is always pictured with the wheel as being the spoke that's going down and touching the ground. I had a mentor at one time by the name of Jim Stewart here in town that... uh, Jim used to like to say that all the spokes are important. He was a former navigator. All the spokes are important, but if you have to let, if you have to make sure that one spoke is strong and let the others get weak for a while, make sure that, the, that you're in the Word. Make sure that the Word is strong in your life. Do you share that with the angels? A desire to look into God's Word? Fourth of all, are you prepared to share with others? Maybe a simple thing like knowing the address list of God that identified his, his, um, his anointed one, his son, would help you in sharing your faith with other people. Maybe that's a good thing to look into. It's not a hard thing to absorb. And get that list down. Or some other way of presenting the gospel to other people, sharing it with other people. We have too much here, too. Too much freedom to let us sit and to ourselves and live in isolation. On July 4th, 1976, which was the 200th birthday of the United States, most of you weren't around probably back then, I, I, uh, I did happen to get the opportunity to work as a youth pastor that summer, and, and we, we were trying to uh, imitate the colonial days. We, I actually had an opportunity to to shout the gospel out across the, a city park like a, like a circuit rider back then. Um, that was kind of a fun experience. But there were other things going on that day, too. Most of you are probably too young to remember the raid on Entebbe in, um, in uh, Uganda, Idi Amin, the, the despot there, who was the Muslim despot who was there, um, Air, there, there were some terrorists, Palestinian terrorists, who had taken an Air France jet 139 captive, hostage, and had taken it to Antabi, 
uh, Uganda and were holding them hostage there. And a daring raid, the Israelis went and invaded that airport and freed the hostages. Not without cost. There were deaths along the way. Three of the hostages were killed. Uh, there was a 75-year-old woman who had left the, um, the, the hostages before and had been taken to a hospital after the after the uh, Israelis got away with the rest of the hostages, Idi Amin had that 75-year-old woman dragged from a hospital bed and brutally murdered because she was one of the remaining hostages. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, the present prime minister, his brother was one of the leaders of that raid and was killed in that raid. Israel refused to accept the enslavement that came with living under the fear of terrorists. In a spiritual battle, we have similar things going on today. In Galatians 5.1, it says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. How's your battle going? Are you winning? Are you experiencing the freedom that Christ has for you? Let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for this day, for this time of year to remember the independence of the United States. And Lord, uh, as we shoot off our firecrackers and things, it's easy to not remember what drove uh, the, um, our founding fathers to risk their lives and livelihood for the sake of gaining freedom for this country. Lord, um, and not everybody was all agreed. It's estimated that maybe only a third of the, 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 the people in the United States at that time really agreed with, with uh, rebellion against England at the time. Today it's easy, it's even easier for us to forget the enslavement that they felt themselves under. Today we have an even greater enslavement going on, a spiritual enslavement around us. That We need to remember the freedom that you have bought for us with your precious blood the blood of your son thank you for giving us so much evidence of that special purchase he made for us Lord we give you this day help us to remember you as you would have us remember you in Jesus name Amen